0: Christ by Jesus Christ about Jesus Christ and we're continuing in that last week we did an intro Um, if you're away for any reason we are thankful and uh, grateful to have technology help us and so these sermons are online uh, at our YouTube channel so please go and check those out if you need it Um, also it's just kind of a good idea to check on check them out but we're going to read first um, the scripture and let me read it uh, with you Um, and then we'll kind of jump right in pray together and jump right in. So today we're reading from Revelation chapter one, verses nine through 20. Revelation chapter one, verses nine through 20. And as always, this word should be on the screen. If you do not have your Bible. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus. I was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum and to Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest, was a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one i was dead and behold i'm alive forevermore and i have the keys of death and of hades therefore write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands the seven stars are an a- are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are these seven churches this is the word of the lord Thanks be to God. Let's pray together and then jump right in. Father, would you help us to see this vision as John saw it? Would you help us to understand what the vision does in our lives? That is not just something we see, but that indeed vision does something and help us indeed. Would you speak through me, though I am feeble and weak and small, that you would indeed produce and bring forth your great word into this place? And we pray for all those who are listening, and we pray that indeed you saw you gave john the right eyes to see and he remembered correctly and that we will indeed through john and through this see you all the new this day we pray in jesus name amen Uh, one of the most popular questions that you're asked when you grow up all the time is what do you want to be when you grow up right or what do you see yourself doing in 10 years and uh if you're like me i didn't really like it when i was asked that question right or you're asked sometimes like how do you picture yourself or your life in 10 Years And the reason why these questions are so important and we're asked these questions all the time is because they're all a matter of what I call vision. It's basically this understanding where do you or what do you envision your life to be, right? What do you envision things to be later on down the road, right? So in this way, vision for us in our culture, in our world, for our families has become synonymous or the same with future or plan or hope or dreams or ambitions, right? And because we are the way that we are in many ways, the greater your vision or the greater your ambition or the greater your hope, the greater the results, we're told, right? We're told things like dream big, vision big, right? How are you going to ever get to what you want if you're not dreaming big? So make sure you dream big, don't dream small. And of course, in the same way, as it always is with many things, that the smaller your dreams, therefore, or your lack of vision will equal less than satisfactory results. But oftentimes you're told the reason why you don't have what you want is because you didn't dream big enough aim higher aim for the stars reach for the sky and you'll get what you want our culture then as a result of this understanding is a culture dominated by the very specific understanding of this vision a plan a hope a vision for the future something you strive for something you reach for something you dream for and therefore you will realize largely because you envisioned it right You saw it and you wanted it, therefore you went out and got it. And it seems to me, at least particularly for people your age, but not just you, but everyone, right? It seems to me that this vision, right, that this hope, that's the thing that dominates or guides the motivations of your life. It's the thing that makes you do what you do. Your dreams of your future is what makes you pick the school that you want. It's what makes you pick the major you study. It's what makes you pick the job that you get. And it's what makes you pick the spouse that you eventually marry. Things have to align with these visions that we have for ourselves or else you're going to get a pretty crappy life, you're told, right? But for me, as I think about it more and more, this understanding of vision and therefore the use of this understanding of vision, for me, is greatly misplaced or what I would just say flatly incorrect that we're understanding vision wrongly for us. And because we're understanding it wrongly, and it's the thing that maybe guides our entire life, or the most of it, or dominates why we do what we do, then we have to really look at what this all means. Now, you might be wondering, why? Why do you say that, Pastor? Like, you know, what's so wrong with dreaming big and hoping big, and things like that? And let me... First, correct, and let me just make sure you understand. I'm not against hoping, I'm not against dreaming, I'm not against wanting, envisioning big things. If anything, I'm the person most guilty of dreaming big, not settling for anything less than what I hope for, right? It's the reason why we do our youth ministry the way that we do. I push you and I dream big and think that you as middle or high school students, right, teenagers can do much bigger than what everyone expects of you, but, the biggest difference between my version or God's understanding of vision, which is what I align with, and the world's understanding of vision is really important to distinguish and understand why I do what I do. Because the world's vision, as I said, is based on a hope and a future, but it's based and hope on a future that is almost entirely uncertain and unknown. Did you know that? Because no matter how hard you think or how hard you want yourself to become something, how sure are you that you are actually going to become that thing? How sure are you that your dream of the perfect future, whatever it is, and how hard and however clearly and and detailed you've envisioned it, how sure are you that that's going to turn out the way it's going to be? What's the probability? Or I should say, how much money are you willing to put on that? I asked one of our teachers, I won't tell you who, and I said, how much money would you put? How much money would you bet on the fact that your future or your child's future will become what you envisioned it? And this teacher said, zero. It's one of the worst bets you could ever make. The probabilities are terrible, right? Our understanding of vision is based on things that we cannot know and will not know. But God's vision is alter- just altogether different because it's based on the realities. It's on the things that you can take to the bank. Facts, right? As we saw last week, God's vision is based on the things that are seen and unseen of the future and of the present, but the things that are indeed true. The revelation of Jesus Christ, by Jesus Christ, about Jesus Christ, or the apocalypse of said Jesus Christ is literally the unveiling, the revealing of something that was there that you just didn't see yet. God's vision is based on stuff that's true, not based on things you just reach out and hope for. Remember last week, there was a gift card sitting underneath a chair. The apocalypse of the gift card was that it was always there, or at least there since the morning. You just didn't recognize it. The vision of God are based on things that are real, not on things that are just hoped for, blindly hoped for. And this vision that John has in Apocalypse... The, the Revelation, the Apocalypse of Jesus is indeed a vision. It's something that John saw while he was on pris- He was in prison on the island of Patmos. And again, I remind you, the purpose of the vision, the purpose of the Apocalypse, the purpose of the Revelation here, this book is to set our current present in light of the reality of what is to come, which is to say Jesus is coming again and redeeming everything, bringing a new heaven and a new earth, and that changes things. And also... The present reality of the present, that Jesus has lived, died, resurrected, and ascended. And because of what he's done, the world is different. And is going to be different, and therefore must mean something for us. So visions, as Eugene Peterson, the famous author and the writer of the Message Bible Version, right, says, Visions, if they are truly visions and not wish fulfillment dreams, they make something happen. Visions or vision in God's understanding of it. They're not a wish upon a star I hope but I have no real clue if they'll ever happen hope type visions They are because of what I know is true. I know things are and will be a certain way types of vision And I think as John did and the people of his time did we need vision more than anything else Maybe and our youth group I think needs vision so today as we kind of continue this journey through the book of Revelation, and we'll continue it for the next little while, right? We want to ask three questions. Why did John and his people and we, therefore, need vision or this vision? What did John see in this vision? And three, what does the vision do for John, for his people, and more importantly, at least in our setting, for us, right? So why did they need it? Why do we need it? what did he see what is the vision and what does the vision actually do cool that's what we want to go through today so let's jump right in first why the vision let me give you a little background on what's happening here john the apostle john right the writer of the book of john the beloved disciple john he's in prison and he's in prison as a political prisoner and he's put on the island of patmos basically to rot and die there right and so imagine kind of uh who's seen the movie castaway Right? You've seen that movie, Tom Hanks is on this remote island, he, nobody knows where he is. It's kind of like that. Imagine being on that island, but make it doubly worse by being in prison, surrounded by prison guards on an island that's remote like that. So they put him there, literally, to rot. And John is there in prison because of a Roman emperor named Dominion or or however you pronounce his name right and 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 this uh this empire uh, emperor is a very insecure man and so because he's insecure and like every king you kind of find throughout history their insecurity drives them right and it drove him to decree that everyone in the kingdom everyone in the empire of rome worship him as god as lord caesar and so you had to call him lord caesar Caesar, curios right lord caesar but john because he is john and he knows some things about who god is he goes wait no no no! i can't do that because there's only one lord and his name is jesus and so john politely refuses and in his ref- in his refusal to worship this emperor he then becomes an enemy of the state an enemy of the empire so-called right but rather than killing john which is what the emperor would have done to most prisoners like this or most enemy of the states He then sends him to prison because uh, I think the emperor and people knew back then that if you killed the leader of a major movement, which Christianity was at that time, then what it does, it just makes the people, you know, drive harder and become bigger and bond together. So instead of doing that, rather than killing him, making a show out of it, he sends him to this remote island called Patmos and says, you know what, why don't you go there and die and just rot, right? And so now John, the apostle John, leader of all these churches, right, is in crisis he doesn't know what to do because to him it seems like the gospel has lost it seems like the gospel is powerless against the mighty empire that is rome and again as peterson says everything john has believed and preached is to all evidence a disaster all the churches that he has led are leaderless Everything seems doomed. The future that he thought was going to be amazing, right, is all going down the drain. And John, I think at this point, is wondering, if Jesus is truly Lord, as I believe he is, then how come he can't take care of his churches? How come he can't take care of his pastors? How come he can't take care of his people? What do I do now? And I think for many of us, in many different situations, we feel this way, don't we? What do I do? Where do I go? And just when everything then seemed lost, or over or doomed John in prison receives a series of visions he sees as we saw last week a film a play put on before him and because he sees what he sees everything changes and what John thought was reality glim uh, you know bleak and, and grim and just just dead and no no hope no future all of a sudden gets turned on his head and he's reminded It's unveiled to him. It's apocalypsized, as I say, that what the present reality actually is isn't what he thinks he sees. And so for the vision that John sees, again, God's vision, the vision that he sees rescues John because it actually makes him see what reality truly is. And I think if we're being honest, our churches, our church here, and the churches of the world today, we are in the same predicament. As I said last week, this revelation is for people in crisis, and that's who we are. Our churches we're in crisis. We're falling apart at the seams. We don't know where to go. We don't know how to answer many of the questions that are out there, answers, uh, questions of homosexuality, questions of natural disaster, right? Questions of things in the church. We don't, we, don't, we don't have any answers. We don't have anything to say, it seems, on all of these. And so what we need, as John needed, is a vision of what is reality. Not something we hope for, something unknown, but something that is actually true. So what God is doing for John and what he's doing for us is helping us to see clearly. It's helping us to put on glasses. I got a haircut the other day and when I get a haircut and I, and I forget to put my contacts on, I go in and, and my uh, hairstylist is just cutting my hair and I, can't, I literally can't see anything. Like I have no idea what she's doing. So I can't even comment and be like, Oh, you did that wrong. She she does it she does it wonderfully every time, right? And then it happened that I was sitting there like like this and she was cutting my hair and then she was done and she generally shows me she takes a mirror and like she shows me everything. Right. So she picked up a mirror, and she put it there, and I said, Judy, I'm so sorry. She says, Her name is Judy. I can't see a thing right now. She goes, Oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. So she gives me my glasses like, Ah, okay, I can see now what it looks like. That's what Revelation is doing. My haircut was already as it was. It didn't change because I put on my glasses. I just can now see it for what it is. So that's why he needed vision. Second, then, quickly, what did John see? And we're going to go through a lot because he saw a lot, but this is really cool. What did John see here? This is the first of seven visions recorded in the book of Revelation. Okay? And this is what he saw. Let me read it to you again. It says, John sees seven golden lampstands in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white. Like, wool, well, like Gandalf kind of thing, right? Like snow. And his eyes were a flame of fire. His feet were burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in strength. Woo! It's a lot. We're going to go through all these little by little. Follow with me here, okay? Let me tell you what all this means. And As a, as a precursor, just understand all these things he sees is Jesus, okay? So first, the seven golden lampstands. In Exodus 25, 31 through 39, it tells us that outside of the temple, and the, for those of you who don't know, the temple is kind of like an onion, and you peer outside the layer, so each layer gets more and more holy as you go. And the inside of the, uh, of the temple is the Holy of Holies, right? Right outside the Holy of Holies, right, on the south side was a seven-branched lampstand. So what first thing that God is telling John is that the area he stands in right there is like the Holy of Holies. The prison of Patmos has now become a sanctuary of worship. And then, of course, Jesus tells us later that the seven lampstands represents the seven churches that he's writing to. Okay, so that's what the seven golden lampstands mean. God is transforming Patmos, this island that he's supposed to rot on, into a worship place, into a, the Holy of Holies, into the temple. And then he says that in the middle of these lampstands, in the middle of this Holy of Holies, in the middle of these seven churches, he sees one like a son of man. And if you were here a few years ago we went over what the son of man means. let me remind you right the son of man or a son of man is the most popular way jesus refers to himself that's the name he likes to use most often throughout the entire gospels he calls himself son of man like a ton of times but the word or the term son of man comes originally from daniel 7 13-14 and in it it says i saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man so people in the hebrew days understood the son of man right? As this commanding, like redeeming, amazing, glorious figure. They understood the son of man to be someone who's going to reclaim all the splendor of Adam that they lost in the fall, reclaim all the descendants and their glorious riches, and basically the son of man was going to just rescue everyone. It was like the superhero of all superheroes was the son of man. And people, when they saw and heard Son of Man, they pictured a man coming down on a cloud with lightning and thunder, and they re- envisioned all these things. Which is why, whenever Jesus called himself the Son of Man in the Bible, everyone was wondering, like, what the crap is going on? Because he was just this poor country, uh, f- country carpenter from Galilee, this itinerant rabbi who just traveled around and said some things. And they're like, this can't be the Son of Man, because the Son of Man's like this glorious figure, and you're just this random dude from Galilee, like you, you don't make up to nothing, right? And so now, then Jesus sees, or John sees, excuse me, Jesus as this preexistent heavenly being who comes to establish the kingdom that cannot be destroyed. So a lot of the people back in the day, they, when they heard Jesus the Son of Man, they heard, oh, how cool can he be? I mean, last I checked, he died on a cross. And people aren't quite sure whether he actually resurrected or somebody stole his body, right? So they had this understanding of Jesus, but John sees Jesus as the son of man, full with the clouds and the whole bit. And he sees and he's reminded that Jesus is this person. And this Jesus, this son of man, this glorious figure, right, raining down from heaven in some sense, is in the middle, it says. is in the middle of this worship place, is in the middle of the churches. Not above, not below, not outside looking in, but in the middle, so what John is reminded here in the island of Patmos, on prison, right in prison, is that in the middle of the churches, in the middle of his churches, in the middle of the world where he's needed most, Jesus is there, in the middle, not far away, some distant place that you can't get to, but he's in the middle of all the action. He's telling John that if you ever thought that Jesus was absent... And wasn't near, and wasn't around, and doesn't see what you're doing, and doesn't understand what you're going through. Think again. Even on the remote island of Patmos, John is saying, "God is there." And the third thing John sees is this Son of Man clothed in a robe, girded across his chest. The first thing John notices, as I think we all do, right, is he notices what Jesus is wearing. He notices the exterior exp- or the uh, appearance of what. Jesus is wearing and the first thing that he sees is Jesus' clothes and this is really I, I think this is kind of cool because for us we do the same thing right you recognize people in our society by clothes if someone is wearing a, a long white overcoat with a stethoscope who is he or she a doctor someone is wearing black or blue with a vest and a hat and has a belt who is he or she a police officer Right, you understand people by what they wear, and so what, G, what John saw was a man with a robe, and the robe isn't just any robe, it's a priest robe. Of course, Jesus is the high priest, and the word for priest in Latin is the word pontifex, and pontifex, uh, pontifex is literally to mean bridge builder. And what John is reminded again in this moment is that Jesus, the high priest, is the one who's going to build the bridge between God and his people. And the thing about bridges, I don't know about you, but the thing about bridges is that what does bridges do? It connects two sides that are unconnected, which means to build a proper bridge, you need to know what? Physics, maybe. You need to know the land that you're building the bridge on, right? So if if you're building a bridge from here to here, and this land over here is mushy, but this land here is like rock hard, you need to know both sides of the landscape to build the proper bridge, right? So Jesus... The priest, the bridge builder, is literally the only person who knows what it's like to be human, and God and therefore the bridge builder. And John is being reminded again of who Jesus is. He's the bridge builder. He's the priest. He's the one who's going to connect the people and God, not anyone else. Be assured. And then he's told that he's wearing a golden girdle, a belt. But the belt is across his chest. And this is kind of an interesting thing, but apparently, people back in the day, when you wear a belt across your chest... It means that you're done with your work and you're resting versus when you're wearing your belt across your lap. Kind of like maybe like professional wrestling. When, you know, when, you're just, when you're done with the thing, you just take your belt and, you, and you're sla- you know over your shoulder. You know, like people's champ, that kind of thing. Maybe, I don't know, but that's what it is. And what John is being reminded of here is that Jesus has done all the work. John doesn't have to be afraid that he's in prison because God has done all the work. The cross and the empty grave proves that. So here he sees seven lampstands, in the middle of it a son of man wearing these clothes, and John is being reminded of who Jesus is again. And then the next little section here uh, all of a sudden starts to describe what this person is like, right? So after you see what the person is wearing, where he's standing perhaps, then you start to describe a person's features, which is what we do right? When you ask, hey, who is so, what is so-and-so like? And be like, oh, you know, Philip is wearing this and this and this, and then after that, he's like, oh, he's got this kind of hair, he wears glasses, and he's got this kind of a build, all that kind of stuff. That's how you describe people, and that's what John starts to see, and he starts to describe Jesus this way, okay? But first, before we get there, a little nerdy note that's important here. In the Bible, there's this thing that's used all the time, a literary device called a chiastic structure, and the chiastic structure is basically in the, in the, in the, in the form of a V, right? And it's basically this idea that in literary, in, for us as Western people, when we read stuff, we always go linearly. We always go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And there's seven descriptions here, right? It describes head, eyes, feet, voice, hand, mouth, and face, Ooh, hand, mouth, and face, seven, right? And so for us, when we read it, we always read it from one to seven, so that the end point, the most important thing is seven, but in Greek, right, and in, 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 in the Bible, particularly in a lot of the Psalms, they're read in a chiastic structure. So imagine a flying V of ducks, right that the head point the v point literally like this is the center point point. and so when we look at this when we see the descriptions of his head eyes feet voice hand mouth and face the face isn't the most important thing it's the voice in the middle and because they're structured like a v i, I was supposed to get the whiteboard i forgot but because it's structured like a v and the voice is in the middle then you can see that the next six are grouped one and seven two and five, two and six, and then three and five, and then there's four in the middle, right? So these are groups, so let me, let me go over them with you, right? So head and face, eyes and mouth, feet and hand, and then the voice. They're all coupled together in this description of who he is, but f- focus in on the voice as we go. But a minute, let me go through these quickly because there's a lot. It says that the person that he saw, the son of man, had head and hair like white wool and a face like the sun, shining in strength. These two are coupled, right? um the the hair and the face because of the first and the last impressions of a person the first thing you see is their head and the last thing you remember is their face and the head white like snow literally means that that head is pure as we read as we read in, uh, in the bible our sins are washed white as snow what he's saying is his head everything about him the first and the last impression of jesus that you'll get is that he's pure holy and perfect and we're told that his face is like the sun. It's kind of the same idea, right, when Moses goes, on the, uh, goes into the, uh, on the mountain, right, and he sees the glimpse of who Jesus is, and he comes down, and his face is like shining so bright that you can barely look at it. It's basically saying his face is so bright and pure and holy and perfect that you can barely look at it. If you've been in church a long time, every pastor that gives a benediction at the end, he says, you know, he says something like, May the Lord make his face shine upon you. That's one of the lines. That's the idea, that the glory is in God's face. And when his face shines upon you and it radiates and shines, it's the thing that makes your life good. The first and last impression of God is that he's holy, perfect, brilliant, glorious. Then... It says that his eyes were like the flame his eyes were like the flame and fire and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword so now it's the second coupling right and these go together because they're what's called the organs of relationship sight and sound are the main ways that you and i communicate right sight and what you see and therefore what you hear are the two basic ways that we communicate with all things right and so what what john is being reminded is that fire in scripture is always something that penetrates and transforms it's telling us that when Jesus's eyes are upon us he transforms. he penetrates our hearts and he purifies it right Eugene Peterson says Christ doesn't look at us but he looks into us much like gold purified by fire the gaze of Christ purifies our hearts and then out of the mouth came a two-edged sword right and what comes out of Jesus mouth indeed is powerful it is a powerful thing it's like a sword And like a sword, Jesus' words, they conquer, they defeat evil. Eugene Peterson again says, they cut through willful resistance, divide good from evil, and overcome rebellion and establish righteousness. With the eyes and the mouth, Christ relates to us and transforms us by defeating all that's needing to be defeated in us. Okay, I know, it's a lot of information, just keep keep up, you don't have to remember it all. Then next, we're told that his feet were burnished like bronze, and his right hand, he held the stars. These go together, feet and hand, because they express capability. It's what we do things with. Your feet and your hands are the very things that does stuff, right? You do things with your hands and your feet. Now, the interesting thing about bronze in Scripture, right? Bronze in Scripture is a combination of copper and iron, right? And the Son of Man comes from the book of Daniel, and if you, who knows the uh, name of the king in Daniel? Who's Who's the king's name in Daniel? Name of the king. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, right? And in the very beginning of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar has his dream, right? And he has his dream, and in the dream he sees a statue, and the statue has a head of fine gold, a torso of silver, belly and uh, thighs of bronze. I don't know why that's there, but legs of iron and then feet apparently are mixed with iron and clay. Now, iron and clay, interestingly, do not make a good mix, and therefore they don't set a sturdy foundation. Clay and iron, when you mix them together, apparently they break very, very easily. But unlike the vision that's in Matthew of Nebuchadnezzar's big statue, Christ, John is being reminded, is founded on bronze. Iron was known back in the day to be strong, but it would rust, and therefore it is not very durable. Copper doesn't rust, but molds really well and mixes really well with other things. And so when you co- combine copper and iron, you get bronze. And what, what John is seeing is the fact that Jesus is founded well. His feet are firmly founded on things that last and are strong they're never going to die and they're purified by fire and just like the feet then you see his hands and in his right hand was held the seven stars and, he, and we were told later in the uh, in revelation that seven stars represents the seven angels and the seven churches but also back in the day the popular astronomy belief was that the seven planets the seven that they knew back at the time ruled the world and right hand right because against people in in this world are right hand dominated is the hand of readiness so for instance a soldier who has a sword in the right hand is ready for battle and a hammer in the right hand of anyone is ready to swing and nail something so the fact that jesus has the whole world in his hand and it's telling us that he's ready to rule the world the planets don't rule as many people believed jesus does And what we're learning is that Jesus is capable of standing firm throughout the ages and ruling the world as he says. And then last, the voice, like the sound of many waters. Voice, as you know in the Bible, means a lot. It means that God speaks. It's always been a very important symbol. The world was created through God's speech. And we can't describe it all because there's just too much there, right? But this is what Eugene Peterson said. He says, Biblical faith is not guesswork in a moral spiritual fog. It is the response to an exact word spoken in Jesus Christ. What it's basically saying is the voice of Jesus is the thing that drowns out all the other voices that are trying to get our attentions and our allegiance. And he's saying, listen to my voice. Following Jesus, friends, is all about listening and following. And not just any voice, but a booming sound of many waters voice, like a typhoon type of a voice. Awesome and commanding, saying, listen. And I think the churches back in those days weren't listening to Jesus. John wasn't listening to Jesus, and he's being told, listen. And we today are not listening. We're being seduced, threatened, distracted by the many voices of our world. But there's only one important voice that does things, and it's Jesus' voice. And again, in the vision, we're almost done. Lastly, it's, we're, we're told that this voice, it speaks. And what does it say? Very clearly he says, do not be afraid. Maybe you learned that today in Bible study. And behold or look. We sang that song and we're going to sing it again. But when we look at Jesus, we no longer become afraid. Or a better way to put it is, when I'm afraid, it might mean it's because I'm not looking. Or maybe even more specifically, it's because I'm not looking at the right thing. Then the question I think that John is asking or that God is asking John is, what are you and I looking at? And in that moment, John sees the one that he's looking at, and the one he's looking at, Jesus says, is, I am the first and the last living one who is dead and alive forevermore, the one who has the keys to death and Hades. Do you understand what that means? The person we're looking at is the first and the last, the beginning and the end of everything. He's the one who lives even beyond death, who death has no answer for. He's the one who's alive forever, and he holds the key to death and to hell and everything else. And when you look at him and you see Jesus, then you will not fear. A theologian once says, you and I, we must stick our ears, or sorry, we must stick our eyes in our ears. You will not see until you hear, and it is when you hear that you see. And when you see, therefore you will not be afraid. And we're going to finish now with then. What does this vision do? And if you've If you got lost in, like, the haze of, like, oh, my goodness, pastor's speaking, like, 1,800 billion words a minute, and he's talking about all these things that I don't understand, that's cool. Check the video out later, and you'll find it. But what does the vision do? Here's the situation, and I I want you, as we do this, and as we finish up, I want you to envision yourself in John's place. And maybe some of you are in that place now. John is in prison, and he's on an island, and he needs rescuing. He's in a bad, bad place in so many ways. And because he's in a bad, bad place, Jesus gives him this vision to rescue him, to transform him, and to renew him. And I think for some of us, we know what this feels like to be in his shoes. We know what it feels like to be in a place where we feel like we're in crisis, where we feel like we're down to our last hour, where we feel like we don't know what's going on, what it's going to be, and how we're going to get out of it. And we just feel this way. And I think as Christians, as a church, we feel like this today. For me when i think about the when i think about who's going to become president i don't know what to do to be honest and many people in the world christians alike are like i don't know who to vote for and then they go they do the well vote for the one who's least terrible and i'm like that's a really terrible way to look at it but we don't know how to answer some of these questions no other time in history does it seem to me at least do christians lack more authenticity do christians lack conviction do christians lack understanding of who god is and therefore who we are in the lives that we're supposed to live the gospel we live and the things that we do is this mixed nature of all these different voices in our mind and we don't know what it is that we're looking at and we don't know what it is the kingdom is and we don't know who is God and what he's supposed to do the church to me and a lot of today I think and maybe you'll agree is a church as a place that has no potency it has no potential for anything we don't know who we are and what we're supposed to be And I think it's become this way in a lot of ways because everything that you do here has become very routine. Everything you do here has become very same, right? That the Bible has become this encyclopedia for knowledge, right? Or as Eugene Peterson says, the Bible has become something with no more plot than that of a phone directory. Like this thing means nothing to us. What we read is just knowledge. But what we have in Scripture is Jesus, this grand figure, this God that is unlike any who comes down and rescues us who doesn't just tell us what we're supposed to do and not supposed to do, but the whole thing is Jesus at the center, the one in the middle who loves us and who's always for us. And so here's what the vision does, and this is what I would hope for us as we finish. The vision, as it does for John and for us, it puts Jesus at the center. It makes him the central figure, the central focus, with everything revolving and reorienting around him. And to me, there's nothing more glorious than that. See, if you are in a situation like John and everything in your life is under threat, everything in your life is crumbling around you, life is a haze, it's a fog, and you're just blindly zombie-like walking through life, not knowing what you're doing and where you're going, not knowing what this faith thing is, this vision, it awakens you, it does something in you, it rescues you from the crisis. And so let me finish with this very long quote. And I want to read it kind of slowly um, to finish. But it's from Eugene Peterson's book, Reverse Thunder, about this. But I want you to listen because he's talking about John and what happens to John. And envision, pun intended, what this would do for you. So before I read this quote, I want you to think about where you are in your life right now. Where are you? What are you doing? What's your life like? Because as I said all along... If we follow Jesus correctly, if Jesus is alive in us, our life will be different. Not just for different sake, but because he is who he is. Our life, we can trust in times when things are going haywire. And by the way, there's a hurricane coming real hard and strong off of the coast to our east. Destroying things in its path. Because of the gospel, we can live life differently. And this vision for me and for John and for all of us, it rescues us from our current state and tells us what reality really is. And it does something. And so I want you to hear these words. Imagine whether you're in John's situation in prison and alone and thinking you're going to die and everything around just crumbling, or whether you're just bored out of your mind because this church thing means nothing to you, because the words that come out of my mouth or the words that are in here mean nothing to you, because it's just boring stuff that you've just gotten so used to. Then I pray and I hope that this vision of the one like a son of a man standing in the middle of the landscape, girded and clothed with all these things, will rescue you. But hear this quote as we finish. Prior to the vision, St. John is on prison, in, on, uh, on the prison island in ex- isolated exile. He is cut off from his churches by a decree out of unholy Rome. Rome is the ascendant power of the day, and the gospel has been proved weak and effective against unstoppable evil. Two generations after the euphoria of Pentecost, it's when 3,000 people came to Christ all at once, and the Christian churches exploded, that's what Pentecost was. Two generations after the euphoria of Pentecost, it is thoroughly discredited. Everything St. John has believed and preached is to all evidence a disaster. Maybe you feel that way. Everything you believe seems like crap. And then, without a single thing having happened in Rome or in Asia or in any other, uh, any other area, no earthquake to change the face of the earth, no revolution to change the government in Rome, literally with nothing happening, all of a sudden, St. John is on his feet. He has a message. He has a job. He has a means for bringing God home to the people and the gospel to the world. And the only difference between St. John the prisoner and St. John the pastor is Jesus Christ in vision and reality. St. John is away from his churches. He's fretting from lack of intimate knowledge of what his people are doing. He sees, then, the penetrating and attentive eyes of his Savior. Of his Savior, excuse me. St. John, weak from confinement, sees the strong burnished feet of the Lord. St. John, used to speaking with authority to his often straying sheep, but now with voice hears the authoritative voice of the ruler of the church and the world. St. John, homesick for his congregation, sees them held in the right hand of the shepherd of Israel. St. John, at the mercy of the political sword of Rome, sees the word of God proceeding sword-like and not returning void. St. John, nearing the end of his days, sees the presence of a radiating Jesus Christ throwing blessing on all the people. So by virtue of vision, the crushed exile becomes a vigorous prophet. In times of crisis like ruined Samson in the temple of Dagon. Remember when Samson was at its end? He receives a fresh visitation from God, which delivers the people from oppression. Vision, if they are truly visions and not some wish-fulfilled dream, make things happen. St. John, exiled, is not. St. John is now empowered. The vision did this. From the rocky Patmos, he's lifted to the realms of the spirit and given the Christic vision. He's returned to earth and made a pastor again, but this time a pastor with power. Rome shut John away, so his churches could neither see nor hear him. But the Spirit filled his eyes with sights and mouth, and with his, the Spirit filled his eyes with sights and his mouth with speech that has given sight and direction to Christians ever since. The banishing decree of Rome was itself banished. See, anyone can dream up a happy ending to a story, but it is indeed, in the end, a poor joke for those who are oppressed and persecuted for exiles and strangers. A vision, though, sees what is actually there, not what frustration would wish were there. In dreams begin responsibility, but in visions are born reality. As I invite the praise team up, I want to leave you with this thought. If you're wondering why you're not living this life the way you're supposed to, it's because what you are seeing is not reality. It's because what you are seeing is scaring you. But what we should be seeing, because we're the people of God, is God, the Son of Man, coming down with the stars in His hands, out of His mouth coming a sword that will defeat all evil with power and glory like you've never seen before. And when you see this vision, your life will change. I use basketball examples all the time because I think it's so apt. But if I was going up into a tournament and my squad sucked and I thought I was going to get run out of the gym, the thing that will rescue you, me from that crisis of losing would be to see LeBron James walking in through that door saying that he's on my squad. Then everything is all right. Why? He's got it. See, a vision rescues us from our current predicament. The vision tells us what is real and the reality of our situations, friends, and we, I think we need to see this. Is that no matter what you think your life is, the reality of the uh, the fact is that God, the Almighty One, says, I am your God, you are my people, and I will rescue you, I will save you, I will love you for all eternity. The only thing you must do is to see and to believe what you see. Is this who God is? Is this what you see? And if it is, friends, I believe your life will change. Our life will change. Because visions, they do stuff. If you are feeling in a place and will pray, like your life is falling apart, you don't know what's going on, then what you need to do is, as we talked about last week, kneel and believe that God is the one who's got it all in control that he's on your side. He's on your team. He's yours. If you're deathly afraid seniors that you don't know what's going to happen with your life next year, where you're going to go. Can God, the rescuing one, take you to where you need to go as long as you follow him? If you think any situation that you're in, any relationship that you're in is unfixable, broken to the point where it can't get any better, Will not God, who dies so that we don't have to, will not he then rescue that relationship as well? That's why the psalm we read is, I lift my eyes up unto him who is my help. So today, friends, I hope and I pray that you would indeed see the vision. Because visions with God, they do things. They make changes. Stuff moves with vision. And may you see then the glory of God and the goodness of who he is. And trust what you see and in seeing, have life. And for those of you who have trouble seeing, may you understand that he speaks with a still, small voice and we must hear. And in hearing, see. So as we begin, and as Philip leads us into worship, take a moment and think to yourself, God, what is it that I see who is it that I see who is it that I hear what is it that I hear and may I hear you, see you, know you and have life in you and I pray over all of you whether you're on in prison on the island of Patmos or you're in the glorious riches in the kingdom, in a palace somewhere that always and forevermore your vision would be on God And that we as a community would be people who help each other see. For that is what we're here for. So take a moment, reflect, pray, and then we'll jump into worship as Philip leads us.